0: Jazakumullahu khayran, was salamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu.
1: Bismillahi Rahman Rahim alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillahi wa kafa wa salam alaihi wa ibadihi wa mstofa. Hosus and ala say hi di rusuli wa hartemil enbiya wa ala alihi leskiya wa sha bihil atriya. Amma bad. In tonight's session we turn to the great companion of Rasulullah sallallahu Abdullah ibn Amr ibn al-As anhumah. In our last class we spoke of his father Amr ibn As and his accepting of Islam. And today we turn to the son Abdullah ibn Amr ibn al-As an. His father, Amr ibn As, had him at a very young age. Some historians put the age difference between uh, the two around 12 years of age. His mother was Ra'ita bint al-Hajjaj. And the son accepted Islam before his father. His name was Al-As, the disobedient one the Arabs would choose names like this to show their strength and their dominance. The Prophet ﷺ did not like such names. They didn't reflect positively on people. So when he became Muslim, Nabi ﷺ changed his name. The Prophet changed his name from Aas to Abdullah the servant of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the two names abdullah and Rahman were the most beloved of names to the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam just today we started the chapter in mishkat al musabih bab al-asami the chapter on names what kind of names were preferred by rasulullah sallallahu which names were disliked by nabi sallallahu alaihi wasallam nabi sallallahu alaihi wasallam didn't like names that had arrogance built into them so the companion narrates that the Prophet of Allah, uh, the name he disliked the most, the, mo- the name he disliked the most was Malikul Amlaq, that someone called themselves the King of Kings. Too much arrogance built into it. Rather, a person should use a humble name, a beautiful name, a name of a Sahabi, a name of a Prophet, a name of a righteous person, a name that has a sound meaning. Now this raises a question that every time someone accepts Islam, does that mean they have to change their name? Does it need to be, air quotes here, an Islamic name? Well, not necessarily, because any name with a pure meaning is an Islamic name if we're speaking of a legally sound name. But if the name connotates some form of kufr or shirk, disbelief in God, or it is a name that um, suggests Shirk, that there is a partner with Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, then that name should be changed, because it contradicts the fundamentals of our Deen. Regarding his physique, he was more of a uh, a broader person, someone who was heavier in his form. قال قَتَادَ كان رجلا سمينا. وعن العريان بن حيثم قال وَفَدْتُ مَعَ أَبِي إِلَى يَزِيد. فَجَاءَ رَجُلٌ طُوَالٌ أَحْمَرٌ عَظِيمُ الْبَطْنِ فَجَلَسَ فَقُلْتُ مَنْ هَذَا Ibn عَمْرٌ That when people saw Abdullah bin Amr Allah he was a tall person too. He had a reddish complex. And at the same time, he was someone with a broader complex, a broader frame. This in itself is what we refer to as a tacit approval of Rasulullah Wasallam, or in Arabic we would call it, تَقْرِيرُ Nabi. Nabi wasallam saw something happening and said said nothing to it. Some of the elders in the gathering that were there, they said that, why are you writing everything the man says? What if he's saying something in jest? What if he's joking? What if he says something in, in a moment of anger? Is that something that we want written down? So Abdullah then stopped writing. His elders told him something. What they were saying had some logic to it he discontinued this practice. Later the Prophet ﷺ saw him in the gathering and he was listening attentively but wasn't writing. So the Prophet asked him, why did you stop writing? He said, "O oh, Messenger of Allah, some of the elders told me that I should stop for this and this reason. Nabi ﷺ said, write, for I do not speak but the truth. فَإِنِّي لَا أَقُولُ إِلَّا You continue writing. And this opened the door for Abdullah ibn Amr ibn Asr to write. He wasn't the only one from the companions who would write. He says himself, and Abdullah bin Amr qala, كُنَّا عِنْدَ naktubu ma Mayakul, This is a hadith حسن غريب. That Abdullah bin Amr, he says that we, kunna, we عند Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam were with the Prophet of Allah, naktubu ma yaqul, we would write down it wasn't just one person that was writing from the Prophet ﷺ, they were a group of companions that were writing from Rasulullah Similarly, Ali bin Abi Talib an he had a, a small compilation of a hadith of Nabi ﷺ, قَرَنَهَا بِسَيْفِهِ that he attached to his sword for barakah. Likewise, after the conquest of Makkah Mukarramah, the Prophet ﷺ gave a sermon and there was a man there by the name of Abu Shah. He approached the Prophet of Allah and said that, will you not write down for me what was said in the sermon? So Nabi Wasallam himself was unlettered, he was not one who wrote, but he said to the companions, Uktubu li Abi Shah. Write down for Abu Shah. What were they writing down? The sermon of the Prophet of Allah, the statement of Nabi Wasallam, the teachings of Nabi Wasallam i.e. they were writing down the hadith of the Prophet sallallahu Similarly, the narration that I said earlier regarding um, the Prophet sallallahu uh, um, alaihi asking Abdullah bin Amr that why did you stop writing? So he said, we're not just interested in the text because the text could be fabulous, it could be profound, it could be enlightening. But if the chain that it's narrated with isn't trustworthy, then the text itself isn't acceptable. We aren't just looking for profound statements on Instagram or you know, on Facebook. We want to make sure what's being said is properly attributed. The muhaddithun, scholars of hadith, experts of hadith, made it their life journey responsibility, made it their life goal that they would study every person that narrated hadith from Rasulullah wasallam to ensure the person was reliable and trustworthy. Now we have come into existence, the science of Asma' al-Asma' wa rijal Ibn Umar, where the second person is missing. And who do you have left now? Nafi' and he says, I heard the Prophet of Allah saying. Or, Or Nafi' narrates from the Prophet of Allah. The scholars of hadith will say this doesn't check out. Because by consensus, this man, Nafi' he never met the Prophet of Allah, by consensus. So if he's narrating directly from the Prophet ﷺ, there's one link missing in the middle, and that is Abdullah ibn Umar عنه, And therefore, there is something wrong here. This is what we call inqita Generally speaking, inqita is not acceptable. Now there are some concessions made, but generally speaking, the rule of thumb is that if there's someone missing in a chain, that narration is not acceptable. You have to just stop for a moment to appreciate the mastery the scholars of hadith had, that they knew which generation every narrator was from. Not only did they know that, but they also knew which regions they visited and which regions they did not, vi- they did not visit. Detailed biographies. So if there is a person who's narrating a hadith uh, from a person, a person who lives in Damascus and is narrating a hadith from another individual in Yemen, and there is no proof that these two people met, there is no proof that these two people met, Imam Bukhari wouldn't even accept that hadith, because he requires We need proof that these two people met. On the other hand, Imam Muslim he accepted such a hadith, because for him the shart was that as long as there was a possibility, these two people lived during the same era, they kind of, overlapped in some capacity, we are willing to accept this. This nuance is there, where they are very interested in every detail. Now if you look at this chain, who narrates from his father. anjatihi from his grandfather. From his father, from his grandfather. Okay. Every time I put up two fingers, I think the phone does this balloon thing. So right now on the Instagram Live, there are these balloons flying everywhere. Okay. On Amr bin Shu'ayb. So Amr, the son of Shu'ayb, narrates from his father, from his grandfather. Now put that on hold. Okay, this is a really good time to take notes to understand what I'm about to say. Now, who is this father? Who is this grandfather? So now we have to turn to the lineage, because clearly this narration exists within a family. So in this lineage, who are the people? You have Abdullah bin Amr bin Asr who had a son by the name of Muhammad. Muhammad had a son by the name of Shu'ib. And Shu'ib had a son by the name of Amr. Okay. And he narrates from his grandfather. So whose grandfather? Is it Amr's grandfather? Because if we say it's Amr's grandfather, that means that Amr narrates from Shu'ib, who narrates from Muhammad, and then next in the narration says the Prophet's name means someone's missing there. Because Muhammad by consensus never met Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Second possibility here is, Amr bin Shu'ayb narrates from his father, and we already agree there's only one possibility here. Amr's father was Shu'ayb. Now the grandfather, if we run the first scenario that it's Amr, we've already established that there's a problem because between Muhammad and the Prophet of Allah, someone is missing. The second possibility is we say that this is referring to Shu'ayb's grandfather. If we say it's Shu'ayb's grandfather, that means Amr narrates from Shu'ayb, who narrates from Abdullah bin Amr ibn Al As, who narrates from the Prophet of Allah. This is a continuous chain because Shu'ayb grew up with his grandfather. His father passed away at a young age, Muhammad, and therefore he grew up in the household of his grandfather, this great Sahabi of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. This is a proper understanding of this chain, that Amr narrates from Shu'ib, who narrates from Shu'ib, narrates from his own grandfather, not his father, not Muhammad, rather Abdullah bin Amr bin Asr This now makes this chain a continuous chain, a sanad muttasil, and therefore not only an acceptable chain, according to some, one of the more prestigious chains of hadith that exist. Imam Shamsuddin al-Dhahabi while responding to Ibn Adi, gives this lengthy explanation Laying out the arguments in favor of this being a continuous chain and not a broken narration. So, in this chain, An Amr ibn Shaib, An Abihi and Jaddi, he said, Can I write down what I write, what I hear from you? The Prophet said, Yes. Even if you're angry or even in moments of jest, Rasulullah said, illa I only speak the truth. Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu says, he isn't a sahabi who has the most narration, but he says himself, as narrated by Imam Bukhari rahmatullahi alayhi, لم يكن That nobody had narrations as I had, except for Abdullah bin Amr. Because he would write from the Prophet wasallam, while I did not write. This document that he had of hadith was very dear and special to him. He kept it close. Mujahid narrates بالعمر, that one day I came to visit the companion Abdullah. And there was a, um, a book under his head. That book that he used to write, hadith from the Prophet of Allah. So I reached forward to get it and he pulled it away from me. Didn't give me access to it. So I said, are you preventing me from accessing your books? الله الله this is my truthful document. as الصَّادِقَةَ I heard it from Rasulullah صلى الله عليه وسلم. There is no narrator لَيْسَ بَيْنِي وَبَيْنَه أحد. There is no one between myself and the Prophet of Allah in this document. These are the statements I heard directly. As long as I have the Book of Allah, this document and Wahd, Al-Wahd, this is the third thing that he said. I don't care if I don't get anything else from the world. فَإِذَا سَلِمَ لي كتاب اللَّهِ وَهَذِهِ الصَّحِيفَةُ lam لم, لَمْ أُبَالِي مَا ضَيَّعْتُ الدُّنْيَا this wahd that he referred to, that he mentioned, was the name of a massive garden that he owned in Taif. Bustanun azeemun taif He really enjoyed that garden of his. It was very special and dear, beloved to him. And as long as I have my home, and I have the Book of Allah, and this document from Rasulullah I I don't care what happens next. Now, the reason why I went through so many narrations to establish the Sahaba wrote from Rasulullah wasallam is because critics of hadith say that the hadith and statements of Nabi wasallam are unreliable. The prophetic tradition that Muslims boast over. Again and again that this is what we learned from the Prophet, this is how we learned from the Prophet, this is what we learned from the Prophet. They say, this is unacceptable because everything you narrate from your Prophet wasn't written down until the third century until much later on. It wasn't written down during the time from the Prophet. So therefore, between the moment the Prophet said it, and until it was documented, there is a 150-200 year gap, and it's no longer reliable. So now this raises a question on the preservation of hadith. That was the hadith of Rasulullah properly preserved or not. They have this understanding that until something isn't written down, it can't be preserved. Writing something down is a part of the process of preservation. It isn't the only tool to preservation. There are other ways to preserve things. A student observes how their teacher does something, whether it's a soccer move, whether it's a basketball shot, whether it's a takedown or a particular serve. They don't have to write it down they can observe very carefully and make note of it, and never forget it for the rest of their life. Another way of preserving is practicing it, that you take that same shot every single day. It's just your shot. You don't have to write it down because that shot was taken by you every day from the day you observed it, and you reflected on every detail, that the elbow was supposed to be here, the wrist was supposed to be here, the shoulder was supposed to be here. This was the trajectory, this was the angle. My elbow had to be a little higher, not a little lower. I remember every detail. And you take a hundred shots like that every day, that is a very powerful way, and one may argue, one of the most effective ways of preserving. One is through hiv, through memory, the other is through amal. What really fueled the companion's effort and the sahaba that followed them in preserving the legacy of Rasulullah was muhabba. It was love for the Prophet. They really loved him. And after Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam left his dunya, and even while he was alive, they dedicated their lives to preserving every aspect of revelation, including writing it down. Writing was an aspect, it was one of the tools they adopted. Now the critics of documentation of hadith say that the reason why hadith wasn't written down is because they were an unlettered nation. Most of the people didn't know how to write. This is true. Arabs for the most part were not proficient in writing. However, this changed with time. When Nabi ﷺ and the companions were victorious in the Battle of Badr, The captives of Badr, the Prophet of Allah, agreed to release them on ransom. What was that ransom? That ransom was that anyone from the captives that is learned and knows how to write, will teach someone from the people of Medina how to write. Teach them. Teaching them to read and write will be your ransom. The Prophet had many companions learn languages. We talked about Zayd bin Thabit who was a master in language. Ali radiAllahu an and not only Ali radiAllahu there were many companions who were scribes who wrote official documents and also wrote revelation after the Prophet sallallahu wasallam would narrate it to them. Then they say, "Okay, there were companions that could write, but there is a statement from the Prophet sallallahu in which Nabi sallallahu wasallam explicitly prohibited the documentation of hadith." The Prophet said, لا تكتبوا مني إلا القرآن ومن كان عنده شيء غير القرآن فليمحو That whoever has any documentation of the Qur'an should erase it. عني ولا حرج ومن كذب علي متعمدا فليتبوأ من النار Narrate for me, there is no issue in that but don't narrate false statements from the Prophet of Allah. Whoever does so will secure their abode in the fire of hell." <sighs> Nabi prohibited the writing of hadith. This is actually an established narration. Narrated by Imam Muslim rahmatullahi, Imam Alaihi, also comments on this hadith. Similarly, after the Prophet ﷺ said not to write hadith, in addition to that, this principle of not writing hadith was also adopted by some sahaba, including Sayyidina Abu Bakr siddiq an, and Umar an. Abu Bakr siddiq radiallahu an, even went to the extent of burning a collection of 500 ahadith that he had. Sayyidina Aisha radiallahu anha, she says that my father had a, had a compilation of 500 ahadith from the Prophet ﷺ. He spent a restless night contemplating, just reflecting, couldn't sleep the entire night. Someone asked him what happened. So he in that moment said to his daughter, that go and bring me those ahadith. And then he called for fire and burnt them and explained that I fear meeting the Prophet of Allah with a mistake in this compilation. That what if I stand in front of the Prophet of Allah and I made a mistake while narrating from him, I don't want any such burden on me on the day of judgment. This wasn't him destroying knowledge by the way. Abu Bakr Siddiq had seen that all the ahadith that he had were narrated by other people and all of this knowledge had been preserved. The practice was there. There was nothing from here that was unpracticed or left out that was being hidden from the Sahaba. He said, now that everyone has it in practice, everyone's doing what they need to do, my narrations are only here as a support. This support isn't needed because other Sahaba are narrating it. So as for my documentation, I'm bowing out of this. I don't want to carry the burden of narrating hadith from Rasulullah Similarly, Umar ibn al-Khattab he um, told some companions to avoid writing hadith down. He wrote to the governors that worked under him, Umar ibn al-Khattab an telling the governors to not narrate from the Prophet of Allah and to not document hadith was, according to many scholars, an indication that governments should not be involved. It could potentially restrict the scholarly freedom of the ulama. Therefore, Umar an took measures to prevent governors from engaging in this task. There are many explanations given to this. Um, Khatib Baghdadi, he explains this issue in quite some detail. And one of the easiest explanations that you can deduce from his lengthy conversation is that Rasulullah because the Qur'an was being revealed, because there was effort being put into writing down the Qur'an, he did not want to divert attention from the documentation of the Qur'an or possibly lead to a confusion between the Qur'an and sunnah. Therefore, some of the scholars, they say the prohibition of Nabi Wasallam, uh, the, the, the prohibition from the Prophet of Allah on writing hadith only applied to either writing hadith on the same paper or same, same uh, parchment that the Qur'an was being written on. Or the prohibition applied to those people that were designated scribes for in his ibadah, in his worship. He describes some of those moments from his younger part of life. He says that, I memorized the Qur'an. I recited the entire Qur'an in one night. He was really excited, that Qur'an. He recited the full thing in one night. For those of you who believe that this is unreasonable and isn't something realistic, you can't accomplish this, Um, you'd be shocked. I've met many people in my life who have read the entire Qur'an in one gathering from beginning to end without standing up. When I was a student in Madrasa, there was one student that I knew by name, I can name him right now. He would sit after Fajr Salah on Sunday, our day off, uh, specifically when Fajr was early. And he would complete the entire recitation of the Qur'an by Dhuhr. He would read the whole thing. Uh, in England, those days, Fajr would be around like 3 a.m. So he would go until 2 o'clock. And just read non-stop, non-stop, reading the Qur'an. Um, he was a very righteous person. This is while he was in Dore hadith while he was in the graduating class. I remember when he would study Hadith, he this particular student, he did not attend the dars of hadith without being in the state of fasting. Out of honor for the hadith of Rasulullah He felt so honored that I had this opportunity to study hadith when he would sit for hadith dars. Specifically in that graduating year, he always fasted. He was a very righteous young man. Probably at that time, no more than 20, 21 years old. Young man but was very committed, he had, this, he had his mind fixated. Similarly regarding Imam Bukhari وعلي, they narrate that in Ramadan, he would do Khatam of the Qur'an every day. As for doing Khatam of the Qur'an daily in Ramadan, there are many practices like this narrated from the Salaf. However, when it comes to just making a full habit out of this, that every day I'm going to read the Qur'an from beginning to end, scholars generally dislike this period of a month. And it's this advice of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa that recite the Qur'an in a period of a month that later on led to scholars dividing the Qur'an into 30 portions, 30 juz of the Qur'an. If you went to the Sahaba and said to them, so-and-so ayah is in the fifth juz, they would have no idea what you're talking about. Because the concept of ajaza' did not exist then. At their time, the division of the Qur'an was primarily based off of surahs of the Qur'an. Later on, the scholars create 30 ajza'a. And most of this 30 ajza'a was to complete the recitation of the Qur'an in one month. And even that, more specifically, to complete the recitation of the Qur'an in the month of Ramadan. Therefore, when you look at the Qur'an that has 15 lines in every page, every juz has 20 pages so the Imam can read one page per rakah and complete the recitation of the entire Qur'an in a 20 rakat tarawih prayer in Ramadan. That was a the model they based it off of. That's why in one juz there are 20 pages. So it could be recited in 20 rakah tarawih prayer. Similarly, if you go to the Hindi Qur'an, the Qur'an that is more common... recitation could occur uh, in, in one complete month, that a person can slowly pace themselves and get through the recitation of the Qur'an. However, Abdullah bin Amr ibn Asr he said, Ya Rasulullah, da'ani astamti' min wa shababi. O Messenger of Allah, you tell me to finish the Quran once a month. I'm young. I have strength. Grant me the permission to make the most of myself. The Prophet said, Okay, once in 20 days. Da'ani astamti', O Messenger of Allah, give me more permission. I want to read more Quran. While we're thinking of I want to read less Quran, he's saying I want to read more Qur'an. To that Rasulullah said, fee then then in that in that case, read uh, the Quran in seven days. Seven days. He said, O Messenger of Allah, give me more. In this particular riwayah, uh, the Prophet stopped him there and said, Faaba. But in another narration, Rasulullah then gave him one more concession. And he said, if you must, if you really have a desire to read, then avoid doing Khatam of the Qur'an in less than three days. Right, and therefore, Shaykh Zakariya when he would read the Qur'an, our Shaykh would say to us that when I was sitting with my teacher, Shaykh Yusuf, when he would sit with his teacher, Shaykh Zakaria, on his table he would have two copies of the Qur'an. One copy, he would read one juz every day, to complete the Qur'an every month. That was his recitation that would involve more focus. He would take his time in reading that, engage with those ayat, cry while reading them. And then on the other side, he had another mushaf, and every day from that mushaf, he would read 10 ajza. So on this side, he would complete the Qur'an every three days and on the other side he would complete the entire recitation of the Quran every month may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us tawfiq for those of you who struggle with reading the Quran daily one easy place to start honestly is go online and listen to the recitation of the Quran if you go online and choose one chapter of the Quran on average how long does it take for the youtube reciter to read one just on average 25 minutes. If you dedicate 25 minutes of your day, every day, just listening to the Qur'an, whether it's on the way to work, on the way back from work, you just start listening to it. You can listen to the translation with it as well, it'll probably double the time. There are some audios on there with the translation. It might double the time, but that's okay. Listen to it. 25 minutes a day, if you were to put that into listening to the Qur'an, you will be on the road to listening to the entire Qur'an at least once a month. What a blessing from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What a blessing from Allah. There was one um, sister, she said to me that, um, she was telling me about the Khivd journey of her daughter. That her daughter on certain ajaza of the Qur'an, she flew through those chapters. She read through them very quickly. She memorized them very fast and she recited them to the teacher. So she was saying to me, the reason why she feels her, her daughter was able to perform so well in those ajaza, as opposed to the others was because the mother used to play those every night for her child before she was every day. Uh, the difference is we're listening to the wrong things. We're listening to NPR. We're listening to random uh, Joe Rogan's podcast. Listening to some broken BBC podcast. Listen to those things if you need to, but dedicate time for the Qur'an. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us this tawfiq. Imam Dhahdi alayhi, while narrating this story of Abdullah, that he wanted to recite so much, and the Prophet of Allah kept pulling him back. That slow down, slow down, slow down. While reflecting on this, he says that in reality, there is no need to rush. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will not tire of rewarding you until you are tired yourself. Pace yourself. In our deen, there is a concept of slowing down, doing things with consistency, being moderate, not going above and beyond. When Rasulullah saw people doing things over the top, he would stop them, he would pull them back. Because when you go above and beyond, there are multiple problems that come along the way. The first and most obvious one is that you're gonna lack consistency. And if you are one of those people that can push through and like, you know, read like a gazillion raka'at every day and make sure that you're fasting every day and make sure you're doing tilawah the entire Quran every day. If you're one of those people that goes above and beyond, it comes with a burnout, not just physically that you're not able to continue doing it, but it deteriorates your mental state too. Because it takes so much energy to do that much. And then now when you go to other places, when you go home, when you go to work, when you go to the masjid, the people that are interacting with you are interacting with a fraction of who you actually are. Likewise, when a person pushes themselves so much, one of the spiritual diseases that can come into existence is that you can look down on people around you. A person walks into the classroom, someone who studies really hard, I see this as a teacher. I see this, that there is one person who's doing well, and the way they dress, and the way they speak, and the way they read, and the way they push themselves, they can, you can see it in their eyes, you can see it on their face, that they walk into the classroom and looking at everyone else, and they look down upon them. They may not say it with their words, but it's clear. This person thinks they're a hot shot. They think they're really it. And some of these people, they get so arrogant, that in their minds, they start saying things like, even I know more than the sheikh, more than the teacher. This is their delusion, and this is where their ilm ends up destroying them. These very same people will then leave one institution, go to the second institution, go to the third institution, and everywhere else they go, what do they say? They say, oh, I studied with so-and-so scholar, and he didn't have enough for me. I studied with so-and-so scholar, and he wasn't hardcore enough. I studied with so-and-so scholar, and the students there were all dummies. It's their kibr that gets the worst of them. You know, the beauty of a gathering of ilm is that a teacher is able to guide people at all levels. It's your arrogance that makes you believe that it's the teacher's job to polish your toenails for you. Right? That's your arrogance right there. Whatever ilm is written for you, Allah will give it to you. But you must remain humble in front of your teachers and also have good akhlaq and good adab. Tawadu' is a very big thing. Humility. ودبر المكتوبة والسحر مع النظر في العلم النافع والاشتغال به مخلصاً لله تعالى مع الأمر بالمعروف وإرشاد الجاهل وتفهيمه وزجر الفاسق ونحو ذلك مع أداء الفرائض في جماعة بخشوق وتمأنينة Ma وايمانن مع اداب مع اداء الواجب واجتناب الكبائر وكثرة الدعاء والاستغفار والصدقه والصلة الرحم والتواضع والاخلاص في جميع ذلك لشغل عظيم جسيم ولا مقام اصحاب اصحاب, أصحاب اليمين واولياء الله المتقين فان سائر ذلك مطلوب fi kulli bi Our religion teaches us to do everything. There are du'as of the morning and evening you need to read. There is an engagement with society that should exist. There is a salah with jama'ah, there is seeking of knowledge, you know, taking care of your family members, and so on. Now there's another incident from Abdullah ibn Amr ibn anhu Mujahid narrates from Abdullah that my father had me marry a woman from Quraysh Zawwajani abi Imraatam min Quraysh Now, when she came to move in with him, when she came to the house and she moved in with him, he didn't give her a lot of attention. He was so busy doing ibadah and worshiping. One day, her, one day Abdullah's father, Amr came to visit and he asked his bahu, his daughter in law Tell me about your husband, tell me about my son. So she said, oh, he's a very good man. He's an excellent man. خَيْرُ رَجُلٍ مِّن رَجُلٍ The best of people is my husband. Uh, he doesn't approach his wife in the bed, neither does he follow up with her in conversation. You know, it's a common practice that a man, a husband sits with his wife and asks her, so tell me what's going on, how are things? He doesn't really follow up that much with me. And neither does he spend too much time sleeping in the bed. So, Amr radiallahu an companion of Nabi he came to his son Abdullah. فَأَقْبَلَ عَلَيَّ my father came in and he ripped into me. Avdha. bilisani. He really gave it to me. He gave me a mouthful. This told him off for uh, the lack of balance in life. Thumma And he said, I gave you in marriage such an amazing woman and you're not taking care of her? This shows us how in Islamic culture there was such an emphasis on maintaining the rights of women and being tender and compassionate with the wife. Then what happens is Abdul Amr takes his son Abdullah to Rasulullah sallallahu He complained to Nabi sallallahu the Prophet of Allah called him in. When I came to the Prophet of Allah, Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam asked him, Nahara wa layl? do you fast all day and then worship Allah all night? Is this your day every day of the year? He said, "Yes, that's me. I fast all day every day." The Prophet said, "Lakinni asumu wa wa usalli wa anam wa That I sleep and I pray. There are days that I sleep. There are days that I pray. There's a portion of the night that I sleep, and there's a portion of the night that I pray in. Ala kuntuk. He used to say "Ya al-Nabi." I wish I had accepted the concession of the Prophet of Allah He made it easy for me And I made it hard on myself I wish I had gone easy When I was younger And that's the lesson of life As you grow older and as you mature You begin to realize it's not about doing more It's about doing it right And this is the lesson for us If we take a moment to reflect here For those of us who do less Up your game but for those of us that are always looking at doing more and more and more, maybe slow down and try to fix what you are doing. Because the people who try to do everything at once are the ones that end up collapsing. When a student says to me, Sheikh, it's taking seven, you know, five or six, six periods, which is full time." Uh, load at the seminary that I'm doing all six periods but it's too hard because I have to work a job and because I have family so I'm thinking of coming down from six periods to maybe three periods I'm planning going to part time Wallahi l my heart makes du'a for that person because what I realize is specifically if it's someone who has a lot of responsibilities in life because I see that person being mature I see that person being real with himself I see this person as someone that's going to be here in the long run now on the other hand there's some teenager whose mom and dad are mashallah, may Allah reward them, give them desire khair, taking care of all their needs and all their finances, and this person says, Shaykh, instead of taking six periods, I want to take three, so I can focus more on PlayStation and Xbox, to fulfill the haq over there, then obviously this is childish. This is wrong? Why would you do such a thing? Every person is at a different place in life. Balance yourself. Towards the end of his life, when the uh, civil war broke out between, um, at Safin, Abdullah sided with Mu'awi because of his father's allegiance, but refused to take part in the battle. And when people would tell him to participate, he would refuse. مَا لِي What do I have to do with this? مَا لِي al الْمُسْلِمِينَ I have no desire to fight against another Muslim. I wish I had died a long time ago. أَمَا والله مَا ذَرَبْتُ بِسَيْفٍ وَلَا رَمَيْتُ بِسَهْلٍ I did not fire an arrow or raise a sword against anyone else in that battle. Because it was Muslims fighting against Muslims. I want nothing to do with this. He would spend a lot of time during the night hours crying in front of Allah, making dua to Allah, calling out to Allah. Ya'la bin Atta narrates from his father and in one narration from his mother. That his parents were the ones that would make the kuhl, the antimony that he would apply to his eyes. And they would apply this for cure. It was a special type of antimony. That when, people, when he would enter into his home, he would turn the lantern off so no one can see. And in the darkness of the room, he would sit there and make du'a to Allah and cry in front of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. Until he lost his eyesight, his eyesight became very weak from abundance <coughs> of crying. Regarding his passing away, there is a great difference of opinion among Muslim historians. On one side you have Imam Ahmad bin Alhamdulillah who said that he passed away during the nights of Harrah, which occurred during the, uh, um, during the period, the governorship of Yazid bin Muawiyah. And this occurred in the 63rd year after Hijrah. And then others say that he passed away in Mecca in the year 67 after Hijrah, at the age of 72. And like this, there are multiple opinions. There's an opinion of 73, there's an opinion of 65. It's somewhere in this, uh, between 63 and 73, between the opinions that Abdullah bin Amr ibn Asr anh, passed away. And also there is great ikhtilaaf on the, uh, where he is buried. Some opinions uh, suggest that it was in Sham near Palestine, while others suggest it was in Taif. And then there's obviously the common position that he passed away in Misr. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to learn from the lessons of Abdullah bin Amr ibn Asr. May, Allah. may we learn the lesson of moderation, the lesson of devotion, the lesson of um, sacrifice for the preservation of hadith. May Allah fill his grave with nur and allow us to join with him in the hereafter. ta'ala, alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.